Welcome back. Our guest this week is Teamsters President James Hoffa. Our lead story, the governor on the back to normalcy road. How long before we get there? On the panel, Chuck Stokes, Shana Roth, and Bill Ballinger sit in with us as we get the inside out off the record. Production of Off the Record is made possible in part by the following. Business Leaders for Michigan has a strategic plan to make Michigan a top 10 state in the nation for jobs, personal income, and a healthy economy. Learn more at michigansroadtotop10.com. And now, this edition of Off the Record with Tim Skubik. Welcome to our Zoom edition of Off the Record, a great broadcast on the agenda today as we welcome to the panel Chuck Stokes, Bill Ballinger, and Shana Roth. Good to have all of you on board. Our lead story today... Governor Whitmer making a huge announcement yesterday. We're on the road to normalcy. You got to be kidding me. Let's get back to normal. The governor's strategy for getting back to normal is predicated on more shots in arms and the quicker the better. Step one, two weeks after 55% of the population has at least one shot, empty offices will be refilled. At our current rate, we will likely reach 55% by the end of next week, meaning we could reach step one just two weeks later, before the end of May. Two weeks after 60% have one shot, public gatherings will increase by 25% capacity. We'll increase indoor capacity at sports stadiums, conference centers, banquet halls, and funeral homes to 25%. We'll increase capacity limits at gyms to 50%, and we'll lift the curfew on bars and restaurants. Capacity limits for family gatherings and indoor events will be lifted when 65% get the shot. And while Michigan is currently at 35% of the population vaccinated, once it hits 70%, this will happen. We'll lift the MDHHS gathering and face masks order. MDHHS will no longer impose broad mitigation measures unless an unanticipated circumstance arise, such as the spread of vaccine-resistant variants. While Michigan COVID data is on a downward slope, hospitalizations are still at 19%. And the cases per million, they're down 30%, but still too high. The state also wants to be around 3% for positive tests. They're not even close. The percent of tests that are positive is about 13.2%, nearly three times where we were in the middle of February, but down by 4.3% from where we were just two weeks ago. The governor advises readjusting many of these restrictions like depends on you. So it's dependent on Michiganders uh, take, availing themselves of this, these incredibly important vaccines. But thousands of Michiganders want no part of that, quote, incredibly important vaccine. Much to the governor's chagrin. All right, well, Shana, let's start the conversation with if you were somebody just moving into Michigan and you read in the New York Times that the Michigan people were number one on deaths and the rotten numbers on hospitalization, why is the governor talking about going back to normal? I mean, I would be a little bit confused by that. I think that it's very clear that given that we have been in this pandemic for coming up on a year and a half, that she wants to give people some hope. And I think that this is this is her way of incentivizing people to get vaccinated. I think that she's really putting a lot of her chips on the, we can beat this thing through vaccines. And she has been very much focused on vaccines for a while. So I think that that's what she's really trying to do is she's trying to incentivize people to go get their shots in their arms and get it done. I 
I still would, if I was, you know, new to the state and coming in, I would still have some questions about that, though, particularly given that these are all tied to just the first dose, not full vaccination, but the first dose, which we have seen that a lot of people are not going and getting that second dose. Chuck, is this premature or is she spot on? Uh, well, I think you can argue it both ways. Uh, certainly some of the key medical people in the state would say it's a little premature uh, because they were advising her to shut the state down uh, two weeks ago when we hit that record high spike. We're still leading the nation. But the governor does not want to go back to a lockdown. She understands that politically it's not popular right now. Uh, people their patience has been worn out, especially businesses. Uh, and she's just a little over a year or so from having to earnestly run for re-election. So I think she's going to do everything within her power not to go back unless these numbers just go absolutely through the roof. But we can't overemphasize the fact that we are still leading the nation uh, right now in terms of this COVID spike. But she, her argument is that because there are more vaccines available, more people are getting the vaccine, then that's a different situation than what she faced last fall. So it depends on uh, exactly how you're looking at it. The Small Business Association gave her kudos this week. Uh, Mr. Ballinger, this is kind of a, a strategic and kind of smart move because the governor can raise the expectation. But if she doesn't deliver, it's not her fault. It's your fault. So it's a win-win for her. Pam, the governor has clearly changed strategy beginning, I think, as early as January with the departure of Robert Gordon. And slowly but surely, she's adopted a carrot and a stick approach. And she is tying uh, the recovery to metrics based on vaccinations. Her move this week was applauded by key Republicans. The House Majority Floor Leader Ben Frederick of Owasso said, this is what I've been advocating for a year. This is what Republicans in the business community have wanted. It's instead of the top-down autocratic uh, dictatorship of executive orders, which the governor relied on for most of 2020 and into this year, she's now changed her tune. I think she realizes it's not working. And with Michigan now topping the nation in cases and deaths, uh, she's got to try something new, and she knows she can't go back to what she's been doing before. So, frankly, she should have done this a long time ago. And thank God she's finally gotten around to it now. Uh, Shana, the governor did have a caveat in all of these dates once we hit 55 percent, 60 and 70 percent. It is if you're in a region where there are 250 cases per million people, you may not be part of the program. So she also, from a public health standpoint, gave herself some wiggle room to wiggle out of this stuff if the numbers are not good in those districts. Yeah, and that works to say that now. But I mean, when the rest of the state has lifted a bunch of these restrictions, I, I, I question how they're going to feasibly be able to uh, enforce, you know, one region not being able to have outdoor activities or to have their restaurants at full capacity. I think that while that's something that you would definitely need to do, you need to have, you know, those sort of escape hatches in things like that. I think that when it comes to actually having to enforce that, if that does end up being the case, 
would end up being very difficult. And I am would be very curious to see if that would actually work, particularly given that even now we know that there are some restaurants out there that are not following the current orders that are out there. There are some businesses that are just not really abiding by all of the rules that are that we currently have right now. All right, Chuck, let's turn to the conversation of somebody that you raised in your opening comments. Um, Mr. Gordon appeared before a committee yesterday and told everybody she asked me to resign and I did. Surprise, surprise. What did you make of his testimony? Well, I, I think we got a few more details about the resignation out of it. But the bottom line became pretty clear to me that when you're an at-will employee and the governor decides that they want to go a different direction, that he didn't have any real options there and he could see the handwriting on the wall. And so uh, he took the resignation. Uh, he got the $155,000. Uh, he had to you know, backtrack on uh, not disclosing all of those things. Uh, but uh, the bottom line is that they decided that they had a difference of opinion and issues on how they wanted to run the department. Um, you know, it appears as though he wanted to be a little more stringent than what the governor wanted to do. Uh, and that's one of those things that go back and forth now, whether or not, you know, you, you know, certainly the Republican side of the fence is uh, poking holes at it. Uh, that may or may not come out to full fruition here. But the bottom line is that, uh, you know, you work for the governor and you were an employee for the governor. And uh, she decided whether it was on politics or it was on pure policy that she wanted to go a different direction. And she now has a new person in that spot. Uh, Billy, the, the Republicans might have been looking for a smoking gun. Did they find one? I don't really think so. Uh, in terms of a big story this week, I think Gordon's departure is really not that important for all the reasons that Chuck and just mentioned. But here's what's important about this story. The golden parachute, Tim, the 155000 payout to Gordon with a non-disclosure agreement. Now, look, we've seen this go on for years in the private sector, and I think most of us are appalled at some of the payouts that corporations give their executives when they fire them or when they leave. A lot of it is to guard against litigation, who costs the company even more if they didn't come up with a golden parachute. But when you're using taxpayer money, and this has been used for years in Michigan government, in the executive branch and in the legislative branch with employees. And I think the public has a right to be very concerned about this kind of a payout with a non-disclosure agreement, which now is an abrogated because of complaints about it. And Gordon has spoken out and he has testified before the committee. So that part of it is removed. But this is a problem everywhere. In a school district in Traverse City, it was a huge problem that created two years of chaos because the superintendent was resigned and there was a non-disclosure agreement. It was sued by the newspaper. It's still going on. So if this shines a spotlight on these golden parachutes using taxpayer money, I think that's a good thing. And I think people are glomming onto that this week. Well, we're blessed to have an attorney on the panel, so let's turn to uh, Madam Barrister. Uh, look, at the reason you sign, the reason you ask somebody to sign a severance agreement is that they so don't walk out the door and turn around and sue you. Uh, is that what was going on here? 
Number one, uh, I, I was criminal law. So this is just, same I, difference. I think, same difference. <laughs> <laughs> this is off the record. I, I didn't focus a lot on, on business law. This is this is years ago that I was in law school. But I mean, I think that fake it. <laughs> at the end of the day, I think that that's probably what they were going for. Look, Gordon was involved in helping carve out the state's policy for the arguably the biggest crisis that has hit this state in in who knows how long i'm sure there was plenty that was discussed that the administration doesn't necessarily want to get out there um and and you know i think that this is as as bill alluded to i mean up until this point this is fairly par for the course this is this is what private businesses do this is what governmental uh, government entities have done in the past and i think the question becomes now is do we want to keep allowing for these types of agreements to happen and is the public going to hold uh you know different entities accountable when these types of things happen are they going to continue to be okay with severance agreements and things like that i would imagine that while this has created I think in, in like the Lansing circle, this is a huge thing. The golden parachute thing was like a huge thing that everybody, a revelation that people glommed onto. I don't know that a lot of people outside of Lansing, a lot of, you know, uh, you know, other people across the state necessarily cared that much that this happened. I think what they are more focused on is the pandemic, is getting their jobs back, is, you know, focusing on, you know, making it through the day to day right now. So, I mean, whether or not long term this has a huge impact, I don't really think it will. But who's to say? It was a frosty conversation between the two of them. Uh, as he told the story in committee yesterday, he went into a Zoom meeting, probably not knowing that he was about to get hit by a Mack truck. And the governor's there. And, and she says, uh, Robert, uh, thank you for the good work you've done. I think we know to, need to go in a new direction. And he said she left the Zoom meeting. <laughs> Adios, amigos. <laughs> Leaving it to her, uh, her attorney to basically say, hey, uh, <clears throat> would you like to resign? And he's a guy. He's played this game he knows i uh, said yeah so end of story all right let's call in speaking about uh getting hit hit by a mac truck let's call in the president of the teamsters union what a segue huh <laughs> how does he do this <laughs> mr hoff it's great to see you again how you doing down there good morning. Uh, listen welcome good to morning. the pro welcome to the program sir it's nice to have you back on let's start with a non-controversial issue do you have a secret plan to organize amazon truck drivers well we have a secret plan but i don't know how, how secret it is um, you know, the drivers are everywhere, and that's our target. We're going to start talking to those people, talking to the Amazon drivers. Uh, everybody sees them with the swatch on the side, the great trucks. Uh, there's a lot of issues that they have. But one of them is, let me just tell you, they have a camera watching them all the time. At UPS, our similar drivers don't have that. So we're going to be talking about, you know, you can have a better life. Uh, you can have better jobs. Uh, you can have more dignity on the job. You can have a say at work, which you don't have now. Uh, those are the things we're going to be talking and hopefully it'll work. Um, Amazon's a very, very tough company. They've got a lot of money uh, and they know how to fight dirty. So uh, we're ready for the fight, but that's our next goal. When is the fight going to be? Well, we're right now. We're ready to go. Uh, we've been talking about it. We just had a Zoom call yesterday with all of our leaders in the country. Uh, we're about ready to launch. Uh, but what we want to do is when the two drivers pass in the, you know, on the same street, uh, making deliveries in a neighborhood or uh, in a place, uh, engage them in conversation. So that starts the dialogue uh, between the union uh, and these drivers. 
so it's going to be a, a next big thing that we do. Uh, we're very excited about it. Mr. President, if you were a betting person and it's the Teamsters against Amazon, wouldn't you bet on Amazon? Well, I don't know. Uh, we never we, we can win anything. We've won some big victories and uh, it'll be a battle. We can do it. Um, we just had that big battle at Alabama uh, where they uh, I was just talking to the head of the union. Uh, they played dirty. They flooded a thousand new people in that they had never seen into the bargaining unit, which affected the basically the vote. Uh, hopefully they don't do that here. Be a little bit harder with truck drivers. Um, but, you know, it's a goal. And Amazon is going to be our next big, uh, big thing. Everybody in the labor movement is talking about it. That is the next uh, big thing we're going to do. Shana. So given what happened in Alabama, how are you guys preparing to take on Amazon and to ensure that this time the company that they are able to unionize? Well, it's basically Amazon is a very complicated issue. I mean, they have warehouse workers, they have drivers. Uh, each one is kind of segmented. Uh, some are W-2 employees, uh, some are 1099 employees, uh, some are basically uh, subcontracted to other companies. So there's all different varieties that they've created to make sure they don't get organized. Uh, and it's very clever what they've done. So we're gonna go out and organize these companies and sometimes they're owned by you know, a cartage company. Uh, so when you see it says Amazon, that guy's check might not say Amazon. It might say something else. So we're going to go after that and see what happens. Uh, it's going to be a big effort. Uh, we're engaging our people across the country. And by the way, other unions are talking about going after different segments uh, of Amazon. And our idea is to basically hit them all at once uh, and basically spread them out uh, so they can't concentrate like they did in Alabama. Mr. Ballinger. Yeah. The national labor force is only uh, six and a half percent unionized now. It's dropped dramatically, obviously, during both of our lifetimes. Uh, Joe Biden says he wants to be known as the greatest union president, labor president, since Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Do you think he's on the right path to do that? What can he do to turn things around? for the union movement in this country to get your percentage of members back up to 10, 20, 25 percent at least? Well, I think that he's on the right track. Uh, he had a very uh, good uh, uh, State of the Union address, which he did Wednesday, talking about unions. He's not afraid to say the word union uh, like other presidents were. Uh, he's got the you know different type, the PRO Act, is something we can work on. He's establishing a White House task force on unionizing. He's got a great uh, uh, new uh, Department of Labor uh, secretary whose goal, whose goal is to make sure uh, we can organize. Organizing is the key because if we can get in there, if unions can get in there, we can basically start raising the boats, all the boats up with the tide. Uh, that's what it's all about. And I think we can do that. But you're right. He's the most pro-union president we've seen. Uh, and in the period we have, He's working very hard to make sure we can unionize and get down some of these barriers. If we can pass the PRO Act and we won't have the intimidation, we won't have the flooding of uh, bargaining units, we won't have the kind of things that happen in Alabama. Chuck? Mr. Hoffa, you just recently, your Teamsters Union, the largest in the nation in terms of union, just got out of oversight from the Justice Department. Uh, it was a long oversight period. What did you learn most from that oversight and what advice would you give a fellow union, the UAW, uh, which uh, just got out from uh, some very tough negotiations here in the state of Michigan? 
Well, I would say that, you know, we, we went through a lot longer than we probably had to. Uh, but, you know, we're, we're out of it now. We've been out for a couple of years. We, we do have a monitor that we've provided for to make sure there's no corruption in the union. But we're basically free uh, of the government itself of being involved in our union. And I would say that uh, basically make a deal with the government. But have, you know, have to, uh, the one thing I would tell people, make sure there's a sunset on it. So you have a goal of everybody making sure that our union is free of corruption, uh, is delivering for the members at a certain time. I would suggest that's basically the best idea you could have. Mr. Hoffa, what percentage of your union members are Trump supporters? Well, that's a good question. Yeah, you know, uh, I would say, uh, you know, 40, 50 percent, a lot of them. Uh, there's no doubt about it. And uh, we run into that all the time. And you know, we talk about, you know, different things and you know, we're very, very uh, democratic. Uh, we realized Trump was bad for unions. Uh, he basically, you know, tax cuts for the rich and uh, the rest can go to hell. Uh, so we've been able to work, you know, with the Democrats. And, and But there are a lot of Trump supporters out there uh, and a lot of conservative people out there. So are your Trump supporters misguided? Well, I would say they are. I mean, because I don't agree with them, but uh, they mix up ideas. You know, I think what happens is you have them basically coming in there talking about, you know, guns and abortion and basically wedge issues that get away from the pocket push issues, what we call the breadbasket issues of basically what's good for you uh, and your family, which we stress. That's the important thing. And, uh, and he wasn't for uh, those people, but they use these wedge issues uh, I want my country back. You've seen all that on TV, you know, the attack on the Capitol on January 6th. Um, and a lot of those people, they get misguided with ideas that, you know, that, that the country's falling apart. And the answer is we don't need that. we got to pull together and make sure we work together and, uh, and we'll have a good country. Shana? Curious. So depending on what metrics you, you use, union participation peaked in either the 50s or the 70s. And now, as Bill mentioned, the participation in unions is quite low right now. What do you attribute this to? And, and how do you how do you keep unions alive? Well, our union, by the way, the teams are doing very well and uh, our membership is up. We're organizing every day. And so we're very proud of what we're doing. Uh, when you see the UPS guy, we probably added 35,000 new members at UPS. Uh, so our union's thriving right now because we're in the right area right now. We're in the area of e-commerce. We're in the area of you know, the country coming back, delivering to our supermarkets everywhere. Uh, and that's why through this epidemic, uh, you didn't lose a step with regard to food supply, uh, medical supplies, because unions were out there working hard. Uh, but the answer is we've had, we've been beaten up. Look at Michigan. Uh, uh, Snyder passes a, a right to work bill. Uh, everywhere you go, you see people fighting to get rid of unions. Uh, and we fight back and we've won in Missouri. We've won in a number of places. So we got to make sure we keep fighting. Uh, I really, you know, the answer is our union is winning. And the answer is other unions are trying to win. But I do think it's automation. Uh, I think there's a number of things going on. The gig economy, uh, there's a lot of things going on right now that are different than were even 10 years ago. So those things you know, do hurt unions uh, and basically get away from the basic idea of having an employer uh, that you work for, that you can organize. So when they go to the gig economy, uh, they go to these subcontractors, misclassification, it really does make it hard for unions to organize. Uh, we have two minutes, but we're going to do an overtime segment. Bill, jump in. 
Uh, Mr. Hoffa, this may be a painful question, but the movies that have been made over the years about your father, like Jack Nicholson and Hoffa, and a couple of years ago, The Irishman with Al Pacino, how accurate, in your view, were those movies, and what is your father's legacy? Our, my father's legacy is he left us a union that, you know, the most, uh, he put the Teamsters on the map. Uh, he brought us to 1.4 million members. Uh, the union was thriving and winning uh, national contracts that no one perceived that you could have national car haul contracts, national freight contracts, uh, where we basically equalize standards from coast to coast, where drivers make good money and have good and dignity on the job. That's his legacy. We're very, very proud of that. The movies, I think, are inaccurate and they trivialize his life, the fact that he was such an important person uh, and he lived and died for the union. So. Uh, you know, that's when I see those. It's difficult to watch these movies uh, because they basically lose the idea of his true legacy, which was being devotion to the union. Chuck? Very uh, quickly, Mr. Hoffa, you say it's time to pass on the leadership baton that you're approaching 80. Uh, Ken Paff of the Teamsters for Democratic Union say you wouldn't be able to get elected to a sixth term. Which one is it? Well, I think uh, I could be elected. Uh, in fact, we just did something so incredible that no one thought we could do it. We just passed uh, the Butch Lewis Pension Re Relief Act that's going to save all of our Teamster pensions and pensions of other unions. Um, this is something we fought for for the last eight years. Uh, it's probably it's going to be part of my legacy uh, because it's something that they said we couldn't do. Uh, and we worked with... Uh, uh, President Biden, we worked with uh, Chuck Schumer, uh, we worked with Nancy Pelosi and got it done. And it basically is going to make sure that our unions, uh, our union pension funds are saved. And I think that's so important uh, of what we're doing. So that's a constant thing. That probably alone, I could I could win going away. Uh, and Ken Papp has been, uh, you know, I've been there five terms. He was against me five terms ago. He's been wrong all along. Uh, let's uh, uh, take a quick break here. For one quick was Joe Biden your first pick for president, Mr. Hoffa? Well, this time around, sure. Okay, there, Absolutely. But, there were 3,000 people running for president. He was your guy from the get go. Well, this last time, obviously. Yeah, all right, Mr. Hoffa, stay tuned. We're going to do close credits. We'll be back with more of our conversation with the Teamsters president and with Chuck and Shana and Bill Ballinger. See you then. Production of Off the Record is made possible in part by the following. Business Leaders for Michigan has a strategic plan to make Michigan a top 10 state in the nation for jobs, personal income, and a healthy economy. Learn more at michigansroadtotop10.com. For more Off the Record, visit wkar.org. Michigan public television stations have contributed to the production costs of Off the Record with Tim Skubik.